Mark chapter 10 verse 32 through chapter 11 verse 26. Chapter 10 verse 32 through 34. And they were in the way going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus went before them, and they were amazed, and they followed, and they were afraid. And he took again the twelve, and began to tell them what things should happen unto him, saying, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be delivered unto the chief priests, and unto the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death, and shall deliver him to the Gentiles. And they shall mock him, and shall scourge him, and shall spit upon him, and shall kill him. And the third day he shall rise again. Burkett notes, This is at least the third time that Christ had acquainted his disciples with his approaching sufferings. The first time he told his disciples of his death in general. The second time he declares the means by treason. Now he tells them the manner by crucifying him. And all this he did to prevent their dejection at his sufferings. Learn hence that it is highly necessary that the doctrine of the cross be often preached to us, that so being armed with expectations of suffering before they come, we may be less dismayed and disheartened when they come. Our Lord's forewarning his disciples so frequently of his death and sufferings was to forearm them with expectations of his suffering and with preparation for their own. Observe farther who were the persons that were the instrumental causes of our Savior's death. They were both Jews and Gentiles. The Son of Man shall be delivered to the chief priests, and they shall deliver him to the Gentiles. As both Jews and Gentiles had a hand in the death and sufferings of our Lord Jesus Christ, so are they by faith capable of an interest in the merit of his death and in the virtue and efficacy of his suffering. Christ offered up his blood to God on behalf of them that shed it. Verses 35-41 and James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came unto him, saying, Master, we would that thou shouldest do for us whatsoever we desire. And he said unto them, What would ye that I do for you? They said unto him, Grant unto us that we may sit, one on thy right hand, and the other on thy left hand, in thy glory. But Jesus said unto them, Ye know not what ye ask. Can ye drink of the cup that I drink of? and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And they said unto him, We can. And Jesus said unto them, Ye shall indeed drink of the cup that I drink of, and with the baptism that I am baptized with all shall ye be baptized. But to sit at my right hand and on my left hand is not mine to give, but it shall be given to them for whom it is prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be much displeased with James and John. Burkett notes, Observe here, 1. The ambitious suit and request of the two apostles, James and John, for dignity and superiority. Grant that we may sit, one on thy right hand and the other on thy left hand, in thy glory or in thy kingdom. Where observe that by Christ's kingdom and glory they understood an earthly temporal kingdom. For of that sort the Jews did expect the kingdom of the Messiah should be, and the disciples themselves were tainted with the common error. Learn hence that ambition and inordinate desire of worldly wealth and dignity is a sin very natural and incident to the best of men. Who can wonder to see some spark of ambition in the holiest of God's ministers when Christ's own apostles were not free from aspiring thoughts, even when they lay in the bosom of our Savior? Observe, too, both the unseasonableness 
and unreasonableness of this request made by James and John. Christ speaks of his suffering to them, and they sue for dignity in great places from him. The holiest, the wisest, and the best of men are not wholly free from passionate infirmities. Who could have thought that when our Savior had been preaching the doctrine of the cross to his disciples, that they should at the same time be seeking and suing to him for secular dignity and honor, preeminence and power? But the best of men are but men. None are in a state of perfection on this side heaven. Observe 3. Our Savior's answer to the disciples' ambitious request and the course which he takes to cool their ambition. He tells them they must expect here not crowns on their heads, but a cross on their backs. They must first taste of his sufferings before they partake of his glory. And they that suffer most for Christ shall partake of the highest dignity and glory from him. Observe 4. The presumptuous confidence which the apostles had of their own strength and ability for suffering. Are ye able, says Christ, to drink of my cup? We are able, say the disciples. Alas, poor men, when it came to the trial, they all cowardly forsook him and fled. Those that are least acquainted with suffering are usually the most confident undertakers. See note on Matthew 20, verses 22 and 23. Verse 42 through 45. But Jesus called them to him and saith unto them, You know they which are accounted to rule over the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and their great ones exercise authority upon them. But so shall it not be among you. But whosoever will be great among you shall be your minister, and whosoever of you will be the chiefest shall be the servant of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. Burkett notes, To the end that our blessed Savior might effectually quench those unhappy sparks of ambition which were kindled in the Apostle's mind, he tells them that supremacy and dominion belong to secular princes, not to gospel ministers, who ought to carry themselves with humility and condescension one towards another. Not that Christ directs to a parity and equality amongst his ministers, but only condemns the affectation of superiority and the love of preeminency. Learn hence, one, that the ministers of Christ ought to be so far from affecting a domination and superiority over their brethren that in imitation of their Lord and Master they ought to account themselves fellow servants. The Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister. Observe, too, that such ministers as do love and affect preeminency and superiority are most unfit for it, and they deserve it best who seek it least. Three, that the dignity and honor which the ministers of Christ should chiefly, yea, only affect, is in another world, and the way to be greatest and highest there is to be low and humble, mean in our own eyes, and little in our own esteem. See note on Matthew twenty twenty-eight. Verses 46 through 52. And they came to Jericho, and as he went out of Jericho with his disciples, and a great number of people, blind Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, sat by the highway side, begging. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. And many charged him that he should hold his peace. But he cried the more a great deal. Thou, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stood still and commanded him to be called. 
And they call the blind man, saying unto him, Be of good comfort, rise, he calleth thee. And he, casting away his garment, rose and came to Jesus. And Jesus answered and said unto him, What wilt thou that I should do unto thee? The blind man said unto him, Lord, that I might receive my sight. And Jesus said unto him, Go thy way, thy faith has made thee whole. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus in the way. Perquette notes, This chapter concludes with the recital of a famous miracle wrought by our blessed Savior upon blind Bartimaeus in the sight of a great multitude which followed him, where note the blind man's faith in acknowledging Jesus to be the Messiah, for so much the title of the Son of David signified. Two, his fervency in crying so earnestly to Christ for mercy and healing. Have mercy upon me, thou Son of David. A true sense of want will make the soul cry unto Christ with earnestness and importunity. Observe 3. The great compassion and condescension of Christ towards this poor blind man. He stood still, he called him, and enlightened his eyes. A mighty instance of Christ's divine power. He that can open blind eyes with the touch of his fingers, and that by his own power, is really God. His touch is an omnipotent touch. Observe 4. Although Christ well knew the condition of this blind man, yet before he will restore his sight, he must sensibly complain of the want of sight and cry unto him for help and healing. Christ knows all his creatures' wants, but takes no notice of them till they make them known to him by prayer. Observe 5. The way and course which the blind man takes to express his thankfulness to Christ for recovered sight. He rose and followed Jesus. Mercy from Christ is then well improved when it engages us to follow Christ. This should be effect of all salvation wrought for us. He pray this God best, who serveth him most. The life of thankfulness consists in the thankfulness of the life. Chapter 11, verses 1 through 6. And when they came nigh to Jerusalem, unto Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, he sendeth forth two of his disciples, and saith unto them, Go your way into the village over against ye, and as soon as ye be entered into it, ye shall find a colt tied, whereupon never man sat. Loose him, and bring him. And if any man say unto you, Why do ye this? Say ye that the Lord hath need of him, and straightway he will send him hither. And they went their way, and found the colt tied by the door without, in a place where two ways met, and they loose him. And certain of them that stood there said unto them, What do ye loosening the colt? And they said unto them, Even as Jesus had commanded, and they let them go. Burkett notes, The former part of this chapter acquaints us with our Savior's solemn and triumphant riding into the city of Jerusalem. He who in all his journeys traveled like a poor man on foot, without noise and without train, now he goes up to Jerusalem to die for sinners. He rides to show his great forwardness to lay down his life for us. The beast he rides on is an ass, as the manner of kings and great persons anciently was. And to fulfill that prophecy, Zechariah 9, 9, Tell ye the daughter of Zion, Behold, the king cometh riding upon an ass. It was also an ass upon which never man sat before, signifying thereby that the most unruly and untamed creatures become obsequious to Christ. Gratius observes that such animals as had not been employed in the use of man were wont to be chosen for sacred uses. 
even heathens adjudged those things most proper for the service of the gods, which had never been put to profane uses. Thus, in Samuel 6-7, we read that the Philistines returned the ark in a new cart, drawn by heifers never before put into the yoke, they thinking them being polluted by being put to profane work. Our Savior here chooses an ass which had never been backed before, and that the colt should so patiently suffer Christ to ride upon him was miraculous, and this was a borrowed ass, whereby our Savior's right to all the creatures was manifested, and accordingly he bids his disciples tell the owner that the Lord hath need of him, not your Lord or our Lord, but the Lord, that is, he that is Lord of all, whose are the cattle on a thousand hills. Observe farther, that notwithstanding Christ's supreme right to the colt, he will not have it taken without the owner's knowledge and consent. Tell him that the Lord hath need of him. Observe lastly, what a clear and full demonstration Christ gave of his divine nature, of his omniency in foreseeing and foretelling the event, and of his omnipotency in inclining the heart and overruling the will of the owner to let the colt go and of his sovereignty, as he was the lord of the creatures, to command and call for their service when he needed them. Verses 7-10 through 10. And they brought the colt to Jesus, and cast their garments on him, and he sat upon him. And many spread their garments in the way, and others cut down branches off the trees, and strawed them in the way. And they that went before, and they that followed, cried, saying, Hosanna, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed be the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Burkett notes, Observe here the obediency of the disciples. First, they did as Jesus commanded, and they did not dispute their Lord's commands, nor raise objections, nor are afraid of dangers. When our call is clear, our obedience must be speedy. What Christ commands, we are not to dispute, but to obey. Observe, too, the actions of the multitude in acknowledging Christ to be their king. They cast their garments on the ground for him to ride upon, according to the custom of princes, when they ride in state, and do not only disrobe their backs, but expend their breath in joyful acclamations and loud hosannas, wishing all manner of prosperity to their meek but mighty king. In this princely, yet poor and despicable pomp, doth our Savior enter the famous city of Jerusalem. Oh, how far was our holy Lord from affecting worldly greatness and grandeur. He despised that glory which worldly hearts fondly admire. Yet because he was a king, he would be proclaimed such, and have his kingdom confessed, applauded, and blessed. But that it might appear that his kingdom was not of this world, he abandons all worldly magnificence. O glorious yet homely pomp, O meek but mighty prince. Verses 11-14 through 14. And Jesus entered into Jerusalem and into the temple, and when he had looked around about upon all things, and now the eventide was come, he went out unto Bethany with the twelve. And on the morrow, when they were come from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing a fig tree afar off, having leaves, he came, if haply he might find anything thereon. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for the time of the figs was not yet. And Jesus answered and said unto it, no man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. And his disciples heard it. Burkett notes, Some move the question here, how Christ came to curse a tree for want of that fruit, which the season afforded not. 
It is answered that naturalists observe that the fig tree puts forth her fruit as soon as her leaf. The tree is always bearing, and while one fig is ripe, another is green. And whereas it is said that the time of the fig was not yet, the meaning is that the time of the ingathering of figs was not yet, but the tree having leaves, showing it might have fruit. Accordingly, Christ goes in expectation of it having fruit, but finding none, neither ripe nor green, he curses the tree for totally disappointing his expectation. Besides, Christ was wont not only to speak, but to work parables, and this action of his was typical, an emblem of Jerusalem's destruction in general, and of every person's in particular, that satisfies himself with a withered profession, bearing leaves only, but no fruit. As this fig tree was, so are they nigh unto cursing. From whence note that all such as content themselves with a fruitless profession of religion are in great danger of having God's blasting added to their barrenness. Verses 15 through 19. And they come to Jerusalem, and Jesus went into the temple, and began to cast out them that sold and bought in the temple, and overthrew the tables of the money changers, and the seats of them that sold doves and would not suffer that any man should carry any vessel through the temple. And he taught, saying unto them, Is it not written, My house shall be called of all nations the house of prayer? But ye have made it a den of thieves. And the scribes and the chief priests heard it, and sought how they might destroy him, for they feared him, because all the people was astonished at his doctrine. And when even was come, he went out of the city. Burkett notes, no sooner had our blessed Savior entered Jerusalem, but his first walk was to the temple, and his first work there was to purge and reform. All reformation of manners must begin at the house of God. Yet observe, our Lord's business at the temple was not to ruin, but to reform it only. Places dedicated to public worship, if profaned and polluted, ought to be purged from their abuses, not pulled down and destroyed, because they have been abused. But what was the profanation of the temple which so offended our Savior? I answer, in the outward court of the temple, there was a public mark or market kept, where were sold oxen, sheep, and dove for sacrifice. Many of the Jews coming a hundred miles to the temple, it was burdensome to bring their sacrifices so far with them. Wherefore, the priests ordered that sheep and oxen, meal and oil, and such other requisites for sacrifice should be had for money close by the altar to the great ease of the offerer. Nothing could be more plausible than this plea, but the fairest pretenses cannot bear out a sin with God. Therefore, our blessed Savior, in just indignation, whips out those chapmen, casts down their tables, and vindicates the honor and reputation of his father's house. Learn hence that there is a reverence due God's house for the owner's sake and for the service's sake. Nothing but holiness can become the place where God is worshipped in the beauty of holiness. Observe lastly, the reason which our Savior gives for this act of his. Is it not written, says he, My house shall be called the house of prayer, where by prayer it is to be understood the whole worship and service of God, of which prayer is an eminent and principal part. That which gives denomination to a house is certainly the chief work to be done in that house. Now God's house, being called a house of prayer, certainly implies that prayer is the chief and principal work to be performed in this house. Yet take we heed that we not set the ordinance of God at variance. We must not idolize one ordinance and vilify another, but reverence them all. 
verses 20 through 24. And in the morning, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter, calling to remembrance, saith unto him, Master, behold, the fig tree which thou cursed is withered away. And Jesus answering, saith unto them, Have faith in God. For verily I say unto you, that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed, and be thou cast into the sea, and thou shalt not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. Therefore I say unto you, What things soever ye desire, when ye pray, believe that ye receive them, and ye shall have them. Burkett notes, The blasting and sudden withering of the fig tree at the word of Christ plainly showed his divine power, and by this miraculous operation, our Savior designed to show his disciples the mighty power of faith, that is, a full persuasion of the power of God, that he is able, and the goodness of God, that he is willing, to grant whatever we ask according to his will, that has a tendency to his glory and our good. Learn hence that faith is a necessary and principal ingredient in prayer. Praying without faith is like to a man shooting without a bullet. It makes a noise, but doth no execution. Secondly, that whatsoever good thing God has made the matter of his promise shall be given to good men in a way of performance, provided they pray in faith. Whatsoever ye desire, believe that ye receive them, and ye shall have them. Verses 23 through 26. And when you stand praying, forgive, if you have aught against any, that your Father also, which is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father, which is in heaven, forgive your trespasses. Burkett notes, There are two qualifications requisite in prayer if we expect to find acceptance with God, namely, faith and love. To the first, Christ had spoken in the former verse, to the latter, in this, when we stand praying, forgive. It was ordinary for the Jews to pray standing, yet in their solemn days of fasting they did kneel and prostrate themselves before the Lord, but the Christians usually kneeled down and prayed. Acts 9.40 Now the command here, to forgive those that offend us before we pray, shows, one, that no resentments of what our brother doth should stick long upon our spirits, because they indispose us for that duty which we are to be continually prepared for. Two, that there is some sort and kind of forgiveness to be exercised towards any offending brother before he asks it, and though he doth not show any token of repentance and sorrow for it, because I am to pray for him out of love unto him, and must lift up pure hands without wrath. Learn hence that they who are suing for and expecting forgiveness from God must exercise forgiveness towards others, or else their prayers are a sort of imprecation upon themselves. Observe, Christ speaks indefinitely. When ye pray, forgive. He does not say, your brethren, but men. Matthew 6.14, if we forgive men their trespasses. That is, all men, good and bad, friends and enemies. If we forgive one another freely, our Heavenly Father will forgive us fully. Our forgiving one another is the indispensable condition of God's forgiving us and of hearing the prayers which are put up by us. Verses 27 through 33. And they come again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, there come to him chief priests and the scribes and the elders, and they say unto him, 
By what authority doest thou these things? And who gave thee this authority to do these things? And Jesus answered and said unto them, I will also ask of you one question, and answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or of men? Answer me. And they reasoned with themselves, saying, If we shall say from heaven, he will say, Why then did ye not believe him? But if we shall say of men, they feared the people. For all men counted John that he was a prophet indeed. And they answered and said unto Jesus, We cannot tell. And Jesus, answering, saith unto them, Neither do I tell you by what authority I do these things. Burkett notes, The Pharisee, having often questioned our Savior's doctrine before, they call in question his mission and authority now, although they might easily have understood his divine mission by his daily miracles. For Almighty God never empowered any to work miracles that were not sent by him. Our blessed Savior, understanding their design, answers them one question by asking them another. Says Christ, the baptism of John, was it from heaven or of men? Was it of divine institution or of human invention, implying very plainly that the calling of such as call themselves the ministers of God ought to be from God? No man ought to take that honor upon him, but he that is called of God, as was Aaron. Hebrews 5.4 The Pharisees reply, they could not tell whence John had his mission and authority. This was a manifest untruth. By refusing to tell the truth, they fall into a lie against the truth. One sin ensnares and draws men into the commission of many more. Such as will not speak exact truth according to their knowledge fall into the sin of lying against their knowledge and their conscience. Our Savior answers them, Neither do I tell you by what authority I do these things. He doth not say, I cannot or will not tell you, but I do not, I need not tell you, because the miracles which I work before you are a sufficient demonstration of my divine commission, that I am sent of God amongst you. For God never set the seal of his omnipotence to a lie, nor empowered an impostor to work real miracles.